Hey guys, welcome to the View from the Front podcast, a fast-moving military defense news podcast. For those who don't know, my name is Stan R. Mitchell, and I'm a prior Marine and journalist. Every week, I primarily do three things. First, I work to highlight what our military troops are doing around the world, while also trying to better educate Americans about looming hotspots and foreign policy news you absolutely should know. Second, I attempt to unite our country and remind us of how lucky we are to live in America. Our division and animosity toward each other is dangerous, and I want to do my small part to remind us that more unites us than divides us, and that most Americans are good. Finally, I always share plenty of motivation and wisdom at the end of each episode, because I want to do my small part to help encourage you and lift you up. Life is certainly hard, and I think it's fair to say all of us need all the motivation and encouragement that we can possibly get. Every Thursday, I produce this podcast, so if you haven't signed up yet, I'd appreciate if you did. All episodes are ad-free, and it's completely free to sign up and join the email list, or you can help sustain and support the show for $5 per month. Subscribing will also get you the View from the Front Extended, which is a newsletter that I put out. You can find out how to subscribe from my Substack page, which is stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. And with that out of the way, let's get started. This is the May 4th edition of The View from the Front, and we're really glad to have you here. My goodness, do we have a lot to cover today. In this episode, we'll be discussing several topics, which you probably haven't seen in the news. As I always say, our media does a terrible job covering our military and potential hotspots, so I'm hoping to fill this void. But in addition to ending with some awesome motivation and wisdom, we'll cover lots of items today. And here is the list. We begin with U.S. news. Two U.S. Air Force commanders were suspended in the Air National Guard unit. That was uh, the home unit of the accused intelligence leaker. Also on the topic of U.S. news, there have been two additional evacuations in Africa in the country of Sudan, where obviously there's a civil war uh, happening. Uh, That brings the total number of removed Americans to more than 1,000. I go into those evacuation efforts, which include using buses and armed drones. We'll then move to the war in Ukraine, where Russia has launched two major missile attacks since our last podcast against Ukraine. Uh, But Ukraine landed the much heavier, in my opinion, and much more costly strategic attack when it hit Crimea this weekend. I'll explain that. Also on that topic, could it be that Russia is even less prepared than we even thought of for the upcoming spring offensive that Ukraine is almost certainly going to launch soon? It definitely looks this way. I'll cover two big reasons why. And then finally... On that subject, well, Russia has been hoping that the Republicans in the House, in Congress obviously, would no longer provide a, quote, blank check to support Ukraine. But Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy gave some shocking comments that show that just might not be the case. Now, besides these stories on Ukraine, there are three more that I wanted to absolutely share because they just have to be heard. First, the recently donated MiG jets from Poland and Slovakia. Those may not give Ukraine air superiority against Russia, experts are now saying. We'll cover some we'll cover those small facts and also some very intriguing air statistics that have come out regarding the air war over Ukraine. The second thing is uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky has said that the White House 
has told him nothing about those intelligence leaks. Uh, I'll explain some of the impacts of that. And then third, Ukraine denies a Russian claim that Ukraine sent drones to hit the Kremlin. I'll briefly cover that. Now, we'll move from there to the Middle East, where in Middle East news, Iran's Revolutionary Guard has seized a tanker in the Strait of Hormuz. That is the second such seizure in under a week. So that could be a potential hotspot that the U.S. Navy has to get involved in. That's happened a bit in the past. I'll cover that. Also in the Middle East, Russian warplanes are trying to, quote, dogfight U.S. jets over Syria, uh, a U.S. general says. I'll cover that as well. And then finally in Middle East news, Syrian refugees are fearful and scared as Lebanon steps up deportations. Now, these Syrian refugees had fled Syria when the place turned into just a terrible civil war with lots of fighting between government forces and anti-government forces. And then, of course, ISIS moved in. So there have been a lot of refugees, and a lot of them are in, in, are in uh, Lebanon, and they are now facing deportations. So that could be some news happening there as these population shifts happen. We'll move from all of that to some tech news where is it possible that Ukraine has created mobile drones that carry landmines and attack tanks from their vulnerable underside? It sure appears so. So according to some uh, recently brand new released uh, video, that appears to be the case. I'll explain that. And then at the end of the episode, we will cover plenty of motivation and wisdom at the end, as we always do. Now, before we get to all of that news, let me just say that I think there's one person out there who's listening to me right now that is probably on the edge of becoming a paid subscriber. So I wanted to say one word to that person, whoever that person is. And that is that, you know, I haven't had a new paid subscriber in a couple of weeks. I've had a couple free signups. Those always make my day. But if you're one of those people that's kind of on the line, you've been enjoying it for a while, you've been thinking about it, I would really appreciate if you did cross that line and, you know, supported the show for $5 a month. It would really make my day. I've been putting a lot of time and effort into it. And frankly, I am not the best salesman. I don't like to ask for help. I don't like to encourage people. Uh, I never was the guy that was very good at doing the whole door-to-door sales when I was in high school or middle school trying to sell the coupon books or whatever it was at the time. But, you know, I am trying to take the podcast to the next level to take my fiction career to the next level i do want to help more people and sometimes i have to remind myself that there are people out there that want to help support young folks who are chasing a dream and so if you're that person you've really been enjoying this show for a while you've thought about it just been a little busy or just not quite to that point you would freaking make my day if you cross that line so if you are that person i would love to get that notification If not, though, no pressure, but I did want to say that, like I said, I am a terrible salesman. I even hate selling that, and they're saying that, just not very good at selling myself, which is probably why I haven't gotten any ads or anything like that. I just have this belief that if I put out a good show, people will continue to support it, so that's what I've been trying to do. So thanks for letting me say that. Let's get to the news. We begin with news about the United States. We've talked for several weeks now about the big leak and what that has done to the intelligence community and to our country. And as part of that coverage, there has been additional news since last Thursday when I last spoke with you. And that is 
the fallout has continued. The United States Air Force has suspended two commanders in the Air National Guard unit that was the unit from which the alleged accused intelligence leaker is a part of. Uh, from that story, which originally broke in Reuters, the story states this, the Department of Air Force has temporarily removed these individuals' access to classified systems and information. The case has been called the most serious U.S. security breach since more than 700,000 documents, videos, and diplomatic cables appeared on the WikiLeaks website in 2010. Everyone remembers the WikiLeaks huge dump back in 2010. So they're now saying that this most recent uh, classified leak is the largest one since then. They are still running down leads. They are still investigating it, and I'm sure we'll continue to hear more. But two U.S. Air Force commanders have been suspended in the Air National Guard unit that was a part of this story. So definitely wanted to share that. Also, on the topic of U.S. news, there have been two additional evacuations in Africa, down in Sudan, where that civil war is happening. That brings the total number of removed Americans to more than a thousand. Now, I covered a little bit about this last week, and let's just cover this for just a moment. And you will have to forgive me if it sounds like I have a smile on my face as I say part of this, partly because it's good news. But the other part is, I'm not going to lie, I like to be right sometimes, which is, I think, a human trait. But last Thursday, when we covered the evacuation of more than 100 embassy personnel where U.S. Special Forces flew in, evacuated those out of the uh, capital city of Sudan, if you remember, I went on a bit of a rant and talked about, um, really, I stated it very strongly, that 16,000 Americans had not been abandoned and that additional efforts would be made to guide and lead Americans out of the country. And I did that based on experience of what I've seen happen in other evacuations, but the political fallout was already beginning, and many were trying to make political capital out of what was a terrible situation. And that always just irks me anyway. But I also thought that they were wrong. So I went out on a limb and I said, hey, I think there will be additional efforts to guide and lead Americans out of the country. Went on a bit of a rant about that, which I appreciate everyone being patient and listening to that. And thank goodness for the Americans involved and for my own self-esteem. My prediction has already been borne out. The podcast was recorded Wednesday night and Thursday. On Saturday, the Washington Post reported that 300 U.S. citizens had been evacuated from the capital Khartoum under the protection of armed drones. Uh, from the story, let me just read just a bit about it. Quote, This builds on the work the U.S. government has done this week to facilitate the departure of our diplomats by military-assisted departure and hundreds of other American citizens by land convoys, flights, or partner aircraft and sea, said a State Department spokesman. The Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, also approved a request for assistance from the State Department to, quote, support the safe departure of U.S. citizens and their immediate family members via overland 
said a uh, Pentagon press secretary. And as part of that, I'll read this last paragraph from this story. The Pentagon, quote, deployed U.S. intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance assets to support air and land evacuation routes. Quote, our focus has been and remains to help as many U.S. citizens depart as safely as possible. Now, since that story of the first convoy, now again, that one uh, withdrew or evacuated 300 U.S. citizens. Again, those were taken out on buses with armed drones around them. There have been additional convoys, and there now have been more than 1,000 Americans safely evacuated to date. And there is also some reporting that U.S. naval forces have been positioned to prepare for additional military-led evacuation. That involves two ships. I have a link to a story about that. Now, in classic fashion, so these stories came out. Big news was last Wednesday, Thursday. There was a little bit of political, oh, there's 16,000 Americans, and then there's this really awesome convoy that gets 300. There were some additional convoys. Interestingly, though, in the last two days, there have been exactly zero stories about this evacuation out of Sudan. I mention this because this is a classic situation of our media. Just absolutely classic. And this is part of the reason I want to do the podcast, because our media is so terrible at covering world news, looming hotspots, situations such as this unrest in Sudan, where there are still thousands of Americans. The story was hot for a bit, and then it was political, and so the media was all over it. And yet since Tuesday, not a single story. Most of the stories were from Monday. You can only barely find any from yesterday, which I'm recording this Wednesday night, at least this section. But for two days, almost no stories. It's done. The media is done with it. Unless something horrible happens or an American family is taken hostage, they're done. The American media has backed up and left Sudan. Now, if U.S. troops were to go in, that might change. If, like I said, someone's taken hostage or something, that might change. But the folks who were talking about 16,000 stranded citizens, that has flamed out as being false and like I said the media is packed up and left so this the reporting on this is done unless something else happens if it does I'll clearly cover it but just note that the media is so good at they love hyping things up they love scaring Americans they love getting their views in getting everyone all concerned they love the political fighting that results from that but in the end they're done and they don't really care that there's still thousands of Americans there. They're done. So I'll keep trying to report on this as I can find stuff. It won't be that easy because, as of, as I said, unfortunately the media is done. But just note this in the back of your brain as you think about future things that will happen in the news. This is how the news operates. I know. I was a part of the news. I know that there's only so much space. There's only so much airtime, And that's just the way that... Our media works. It's just a a reality. Let's move from Africa and Sudan to the war in Ukraine. As I mentioned in the lead, Russia has launched two major missile attacks against Ukraine, but Ukraine landed the much heavier, much more costly strategic attack when it hit Crimea this weekend. Let's talk about that for just a moment. 
Now, sadly, things have been especially brutal for civilians in Ukraine since the podcast of last week on Thursday. The brutality and the casualties began on Friday when the Russians, unable as usual to win against Ukraine's military, again attacked innocent civilians. They fired, Russia fired 20 cruise missiles and two drones at Ukraine early Friday. It was called a terrifying nighttime attack. And it's just, you know, just think about your family. Think about your kids. Think about them trying to sleep and hearing air raid sirens in the middle of the night and knowing those aren't headed for military targets. Those aren't headed for troops who may be near you. They're headed for homes. Now, as evidence of that, more than 20 people were killed when two missiles slammed into an apartment. And I'm not real sure how to say this nicely, but if two missiles hit the same apartment building, then it is not an accident. So, I guess Russia has given up on attacking electrical substations and is again resorting to sheer terror. Again, these are war crimes, but unfortunately there's not a lot Ukraine can do. I will say, so that happens Friday. On Saturday, now this was apparently not in retaliation. There have been some Ukrainian officials who said this is the beginning of its spring offensive, but then some have said it's really not. They're kind of keeping this vague, and I'll go into this vagueness of the spring offensive or offensives a little bit later in the episode. But Ukraine does attack part of Russian-occupied Crimea. Again, that's in the southern part of the country. The Crimean Peninsula is very strategic. There's a massive Russian naval base there. But Ukraine used drones and they attacked more than, uh, in the end, more than 10 massive fuel tanks were caught on fire, attacked, caught on fire, and some 40,000 tons of oil, which were intended for Russia's Black Sea fleet, have burned and been destroyed. So... 40,000 tons of oil that was intended for Russia's Black Sea Fleet has been destroyed as part of a drone attack. And after that attack, lots of Russians who are living in uh, in the Russian-occupied part of Crimea were seen trying to cross the bridge back toward Russia because they know that eventually the Ukrainians are coming and that that part of the country that is basically a vacation spot for rich Russians is not a safe place to be. Now, clearly the Russians were infuriated that this attack had happened and that so much oil had been destroyed and that it was embarrassing and that they had Russian citizens fleeing and running back to Russia to tell the truth to Russian folks who don't get the news that this isn't going so well. So, Russians launched a counter-strike, but that didn't quite go... As It wasn't as satisfying as Putin probably would have wished. The Washington Post had a story that Russia had targeted Kiev, which is of course the capital of Ukraine, and other Ukrainian cities, cities with a wave of missiles. Again, they were fired at night. It lasted several hours, but there were no casualties reported, at least as of that reporting. There were 18 missiles that were um, launched. 15 of the 18 were destroyed. So... That was great news for Ukraine that they were able to stop that. However, there was in a city called Pavlorod, I hope I pronounced that right, 
There were 34 people wounded. Now, I'm not sure if that was a missile that was shot down and it just impacted there. I'm not sure exactly what caused that. But again, more horrific civilians who, unfortunately, are the ones who are bearing the brunt of much of this war. That is the latest on the Russian missiles, missile strikes and then the counterattack by Ukraine against those oil facilities. Definitely wanted to care, cover that because, as I see it, these are targeted attacks by Russia, and I do believe they are war crimes. You cannot bomb civilian targets when there is no military target or infrastructure as a part of that. And this goes back to, like, 1991 when the U.S. was bombing Baghdad as part of Operation Desert Storm. We did our absolute best to only target military infrastructure, whether it's buildings. We did bomb some bridges, but again, that was for military purposes. What we did not do is bomb large apartment buildings, hospitals, etc. That we did not do. Moving from the competing missile and drone strikes, could it be that Russia is even less prepared than we even thought for Ukraine's upcoming spring offensive? It looks that way. And I'll cover two reasons why. CNN did an excellent article that laid out two brutal pieces of news for Russia as the offensives begin or kind of start to begin, depending on who you're believing or which Ukrainian official. But again, they're, they're keeping some of this vague, which is actually brilliant. Let me read a couple of things from the CNN article. Again, these are two brutal pieces of news if you're for Team Russia as these offensives either start or are about to start. First, Russia has fired the Deputy Defense Minister who's in charge of logistics. This is the guy, and I won't even try to say his name. It's uh, Mikhail. If I'm saying this correctly, it's Mizentev. Mizentsev's probably butchered it. He actually goes by, speaking of butcher, the title he goes by is The Butcher of Mariupol. He was this highly acclaimed Russian general that was put in charge of basically trying to take, you know, some land in the eastern part of Ukraine in the Donbass area. Everyone thought this guy was going to do a great job because he had done so well in Mariupol. He has been dismissed or fired. So this is like a big deal. You know, you don't, as you, as the CNN article said, you know, removing key ministers, defense ministers, in the moments before an army faces a Ukrainian counter assault, that sends a message of disarray. So this is not a good thing if you're for Team Russia. That's the first thing. So offensive is about to begin or is already beginning and they fire the dude in charge. Literally the guy in charge of logistics and of that area well-known guy, butcher of Mariupol, fired. Not a good, not a good sign if you're Team Russia. Point two, this is the head of the uh, Wagner mercenary group. Uh, Prigozhin is his name. He gave a long interview on Sunday. We recorded on Thursday, so this weekend he gives this long interview that gets publicized. Video, not even just a voice recording, not an email. It's a video interview. And he probably did this for purposes, which I'll share in just one second. But 
Prigozhin, who's the head of Wagner, he said his fighters are so low on ammunition that they may have to withdraw from Bakhmut. We've been talking about Bakhmut for months and months now. That's the city that strategically it's not that important, but both sides have been fighting so hard to reclaim it and to get the small political victory of taking Bakhmut, which at one point had been a larger city, but strategically it's not that important. It's just become important because both sides have put such an emphasis, emphasis on it. Sorry. Now, Wagner has been doing most of the fighting, and a lot of people... There's a couple of reasons he could have done this interview. One, he really could be that low on ammunition, his forces, and they have been doing a lot of the fighting. This could be absolutely horrible for Russia. Or this is some kind of political play to deflect some blame off of his forces and off of himself and say, hey, we can't take this land because we don't have better logistics. Somebody in the Russian military is doing a terrible job. If you just gave us more ammo, we'd be fine. Either way, as CNN says, these are two brutal pieces of news before Ukraine even launches its offensive. You've got a guy, a general being removed. He's also the general who's in charge of logistics. He hasn't been doing a great job. There's no easy solution for the logistics issues facing the Russian army. But then on top of that, you've got literally the guy who has been most successful, the head of the Wagner group, Prigozhin, saying, hey, we don't have enough ammo, and we may even have to withdraw. This is not good news if you are Ru if you are Russia. Finally, let's think about this. I know Russia had been for a long time hoping that Republicans in Congress, as you know, Republicans took over the House, that they would no longer provide a, quote, blank check to support Ukraine. They got a rude awakening because since the last podcast, Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy gave some shocking comments that show that maybe that's not the case about Rush or about Republicans opposing additional aid to Ukraine. McCarthy was in Israel. He was asked by a Russian reporter who quoted him about not wanting to give a blank check anymore. And wow, I'm linking to the video in the Substack notes. It's about 31 seconds. But it's probably one of the strongest comments I've seen from McCarthy that isn't pandering to the far right part of his base. Now maybe this is because he's in Israel. Maybe he had been traveling, was just having a bad day. But he says in this video, he shoots back at the guy and claims that's not the case and says, I support Ukraine and I don't support Russia killing kids. So not sure if it's because of those attacks on that apartment building. Not sure if he was just having a rough day. But he definitely shot back at that reporter who was a reporter for Russia. You can tell from his accent. I'm not sure what media outlet he represented. But probably not what Putin wanted to hear from Kevin McCarthy. Especially as an offensive is literally either starting or about to take off. Let's move away from that. But we do need to stay on Ukraine for just a little bit longer. Besides the stories we've already covered, there are three more that I just feel like absolutely have to be heard. The first one involves the recently donated MiG jets from Poland and Slovakia. 
Unfortunately, according to some experts, those will not give Ukraine the air superiority that it was hoping to get against Russia. And I also want to, in just the spirit of transparency, I thought these MiGs might have more impact than they possibly will. And in previous reporting, I had talked about how important it was that Ukraine get these MiGs. Having said that, when I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And I wanted to share this part of an article that clarifies my own thinking on it and shows that maybe these MiGs aren't quite what we thought they might be. So I'm going to cover some of that, as well as some very intriguing air statistics that have come out regarding the air war in Ukraine. Now, most of this information I'll be sharing comes from a Washington Post story. And this is one of those stories that was so good. There are times where you're subscribed to national outlets and you're like, oh, I'm paying. I think the Washington Post wants $5.99 a month. And you're like, man, it's, you know, hadn't read a good article in a few days or a week or two. And then you'll get one like this and you're like, yes, that's why I'm paying for this outlet that doesn't always have the stories that I want to read, but it has them from time to time. This article was incredible. So let me share just a few things from it because they really got into the weeds about these donated MiG fighter jets from Poland and Slovakia. And they also, in their research, really covered some of the historical facts of the war about the number of aircraft that have been shot down from Russia. This is just really interesting stuff. So if you hang with me for just a moment on this, I think you'll be super intrigued. Now, as a reminder, long-term, Ukraine could get as many as 30 MiG jets from Poland and Slovakia. That was what has been pledged. It has not gotten all those yet. But I thought that would be a huge deal. But this article really gets into the weeds. And so the type of jet they're getting is called the MiG-29. And they interview this pilot in Ukraine whose name is Moonfish. That's his call sign. The guy's flown 60 sorties. He's already he's flown all of them in the MiG-29. And he spoke on the condition that only his call sign be used for security reasons. Now, according to Moonfish, the Soviet-designed MiG-29 is, he calls it a, quote, old friend. Obviously, the guy's flown 60 sorties in it. Now, a sortie is like each mission, so he's done 60 combat missions in a MiG-29. And he said that these things are so fast that he once needed that speed to escape from Russian missiles. So, according to him, the MiG carried his, quote, butt out of, out of danger. Of course, he didn't use the word butt, but so it's a very, very fast aircraft. Having said that, it's about 40 years old. And the article goes into the fact that the Russian air, the Russian jets that would be going against these MiG-29s are actually newer, and they have better radar, and they even have better missiles. So unfortunately, the MiG-29 is an older version, and according to a spokesman for the Ukrainian Air Force, the radar on the MiG-29 doesn't work very well as far as how far its distance goes and also their missiles don't have much range so these jets are going to help but they're just not as good as what an f-16 would be so again ukraine is asking for the x f-16 it's a way more capable aircraft and even though the f-16 is in itself 40 plus years old it's been updated a lot and it has the ability to carry more modern rocket or more modern missiles not rockets but so ukraine is still heavily wanting these 
Let's go over just a couple of other really good little nuggets from this article. The first is that the MiG-29s, Ukraine has been using them with Western anti-radar missiles, which are called HARMS, or high-speed anti-radiation missiles. So basically, if a Russian radar uh, position is shooting out radar to find enemy fighters, the MiGs use these Western anti-radar missiles, which sees where that radar is coming up from. The missile fires toward that position, and then hopefully you take it out. And if you're really lucky, some Russian soldiers as well. That's what they've mostly been using it for. However, the article does talk about that Russia has really good air defense all along its frontline positions. So these MiGs are in no way going toward the front line. They're mostly being used to fire those uh, radar, anti-radar missiles. Now, one other thing that I had thought they were being used more for was shooting down drones and missiles that were coming in. And you can look online and you'll see some videos of actual MiG, Ukrainian MiG fighters shooting down drones or missiles coming in. So they can be used for that. But the article talked to several pilots and apparently they're not very effective. They have not intercepted as many of those as I guess had been implied to the Western media. And in fact, the effectiveness in that mission of intercepting cruise missiles and self-destructing drones is very low. So they're not even being used a lot for that because... I guess it's hard to get the intercept to actually make that intercept happen before the missiles hit, obviously, a civilian building or a city. Now, if you study much about air warfare, you also want to be careful if you're flying behind a missile trying to get a lock on it or shoot it down. You are affecting the ability of your own anti-air stuff from Patriots to whatever, if they're trying to shoot a missile down, you really don't want to be in a jet about a half mile or a mile behind that missile because some of those missiles might try to lock onto you. So you want to be careful about that kind of stuff. So I'm sure that's probably affecting how effective the jets could be. One other thing I did want to make sure I did share from that article is that they do believe that at least initially the Ukrainian pilots were typically outnumbered five or more to one and what they would often do is they would get the Russian planes to chase them, and then they would go into their own airspace that had anti or had anti-air missiles. So they would basically get these Russian jets to chase them, which I'm sure is not a fun thing to be chased by jets that can shoot you down. But they would have the Ukrainian or the uh, Russian jets chase what they thought was just one or two Ukrainian MiGs but the MiGs would flee into their own air defense, and then Ukrainian ground missiles would fire up and shoot down some of the Russians. So using that technique mostly is how they created this figure I'm about to share. The Washington Post quoted a analyst who says that they believe 79 Russian jets have been damaged or destroyed since the start of the war. So that's a pretty high uh, number. They said the figure could be higher, but they tried to independently verify these shoot downs or these uh, damaged aircraft. Now, if you look on social media, there have been lots of Russian helicopters shot down as well, but 79 jets, that's, that's a pretty good chunk, especially when you consider a lot of those pilots probably died or were captured. So no Air Force wants to lose almost 80 
pilots in their jets. So hope you enjoyed learning some of that stuff. And uh, again, I wanted to, you know, in the for transparency reasons, say, hey, maybe I was a little wrong. I thought they could be used better. I thought they would help um, win the air war, so to speak, and control the airspace a little better against missiles and Russian jets. But it turns out they're a bit older. And the article does emphasize that part of the reason that Slovakia and Poland donated the planes was to, one, soften up the West so that the U.S. and other countries would be willing to donate F-16. So the idea was that these jets would help break the ice and make people who are reluctant to donate F-16s decide to. The second thing was they are obviously sometimes mass matters. So they are replacement jets for some of those who were shot down. There are Ukrainian pilots who didn't have aircraft to fly. And then finally, they will be used to cannibalize the planes to help repair jets that aren't currently flying so they definitely help they don't help as much as i had hoped or had kind of implied in some of the things i'd reported in the past so when i'm wrong i'm going to admit it looks like i was a little wrong on this one the second story i wanted to make sure i got in was this one uh, ukrainian president volodymyr Zelensky has said that the white house told him nothing about those intelligent leaks in fact, he said that he learned about them the same way that the rest of the world learned about them, which is he read about them in the press. A couple things on that. One, it's obviously not great that we didn't alert him when we, once we were aware of it. I'm not sure how much leeway the government of the United States had over the media. The media did a good job of breaking this story. So I'm not sure how much they had. Obviously, the White House and the Pentagon was probably super embarrassed. They were also probably trying to figure out, hey, what all was leaked? Who do we need to tell or inform? Do we have any intelligence sources out there that we need to quickly pull out of country? So they probably, calling the president of Ukraine was probably not that high on the list. But since a lot of it did involve Ukraine, it would have been nice. Having said that, the Ukraine is in a position where it really can't get too, too mad. On the one hand, I'm sure they're not happy about this stuff being leaked. On the other, you know, it's the old don't look a gift horse in the mouth. They can't exactly go blasting the United States or the Pentagon because we're one of the largest, if not the largest, um, suppliers of Ukraine. So I'm not sure that a lot more will come from this, but... I do wish someone had given President Zelensky a call. There's already been some fallout from the fact that they weren't alerted and the fact that we did have that leak and that besides all the stuff we've already reported the last few weeks, it's come out that Ukraine is not sharing its planned spring offensive details with the United States, with Europe, or really, for that matter, anyone. I've got a story linked from Politico that talked about the upcoming spring of counteroffensive. And because of that leak that happened, they are not sharing any of that information, including its timing, where it's going to happen, or how many troops they plan to move into position for the operation with anyone. And in fact, in that story, not only are they not sharing it with the United States or Europe or allies, they <laughs> talked to a Ukrainian lawmaker who 
they spoke to on the condition of anonymity. And he said that top officials in the capital of Ukraine, in Kiev, had withheld details about the counter-offensive with even other major political leaders inside Ukraine. And the lawmaker said, quote, There are only a few people in the country that know the plan. So, that was the news. I actually think that's great news, as we've learned so many times in war, especially in World War II, the fewer the people that know, the better. A uh, secret is only a secret if you keep it a secret. So I'm glad they're not telling anyone. I do hope they're getting our opinion on the best suggestions on where to hit and, and you know, what to do. But I'm glad they're not sharing what they're actually doing. Because the fewer people that know, the bigger the surprise is going to be for Russia. Now the third and final thing I want to cover before we leave the whole Ukraine war and I only reluctantly even covered this, but because it it's one of those stories that kind of was going viral, I feel like I had to at least cover it. And that is that Russia is claiming that Ukraine used a drone or drones to hit the Kremlin in what they claimed was a unsuccessful assassination attempt against the Russian president, Vladimir Putin. Now anyone who has about 10 brain cells or more knows that this is ludicrous on about a hundred different levels. First of all, Vladimir Putin wasn't even at the Kremlin at the time. He is well known to hide out in this fortified fortress that he has. So he's not even at the Kremlin when this attack happens. So that's the first part. The second part is it would be absurd to try to do this for like I said, for so many reasons, but Ukraine has denied it. Their president says we don't attack Putin, we don't attack Moscow. Clearly, the U.S. has been very reluctant to escalate things, and it it does not take, like I said, a a, a genius to realize that there's just no way that Ukraine would have risked k- killing Putin because there is no doubt if they had tried that the U.S. and Europe would have really been worried about escalation and what that might have led to. And so it's just absurd that they would even try it. But even better than that, if you look at the video online, it is so obvious that someone was ready to record this. It's It looks like almost like a false flag attack that maybe Russia did itself. But even more so, there's very little explosive in these drones. And it's almost as if it might have been Russian civilians who were just trying to, and this is the latest theory, is that as part of a protest movement, some Russians who were unhappy with Putin were trying to use the drones to fly into the flag of Russia and burn it. That was it. Not, not, attack, the, you know, not attack the Kremlin in any major way. But Again, Ukraine is denying it. I'm only covering it because it was starting to go viral, and I don't know how big it would or wouldn't be by the time that this releases, but I at least wanted to share that Ukraine is denying that it attacked it, and in my humble opinion, it seems absurd that Ukraine would have done this or been involved in it at all. Just a quick reminder, if you love what you're listening to, please sign up for email notifications. It's free to do so unless you choose to subscribe and support what I'm doing. Make sure to visit my website, stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. 
From there, you can subscribe to the show by email so you'll never miss a future show. Again, that's free. Or you can support the show and help me reach my dreams by signing up for a $5 per month subscription. People are always asking me on social media how to best support my dreams, including getting out future books sooner, which I promise you I'm trying to do. Believe me, the best way to support me is by signing up for a paid subscription on my Substack page. Long term, becoming a full-time author again would provide more time for me to write fiction, cover news, and try to unite the country and motivate others. And these are all things I feel drawn to do, which my regular listeners definitely know. So again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com, or you can sign up at Patreon or Venmo. All of these links can be found on my Substack page, and obviously, you can cancel at any time. Let's move to Middle East news. In Middle East news, there are three things I wanted to cover. The first one is, Iran's Revolutionary Guard has seized an oil tanker in the Strait of Hormuz, and this is the second such seizure in under a week. I've got a story linked to it in the Substack notes. But the frustrating thing about this story is that, again, it's the second time that Iran has seized an oil tanker, and one-fifth of all the oil that is moved in the world goes through this strait. So the U.S. Navy will not tolerate this for long. Unfortunately, the second tanker that was seized, there was an aerial drone that has surveillance footage of about a dozen of these Iranian Revolutionary Guard small boats swarming the tanker. They've got footage of the you know, these men climbing up, taking the oil tanker. But unfortunately, the U.S. Navy did not receive a distress call from the ship, and so there was not time to intervene. Now, unfortunately for, I guess, both Iran and the U.S., there has been a lot of missions and small warfare happen in that area because again Iran will try to close it down from time to time and the US Navy is regularly trying to for the benefit of the world and the world economy keep it from being closed down by Iran which in a perfect world would probably want to close it down I have a link to several things that have happened in the past but I, I kid you not there are decades of incidents between the US Navy and our, the Navy of, of Iran, which it's I struggle to call it a navy. It is they use small speedboats and small little frigates and some small ships that launch, you know, anti-ship missiles. But they don't really have a much of a navy. What they do have is because they are obviously their land is a part of that. They do have missiles from the ground that could are definitely a threat to the U.S. Navy. So. It's definitely a pretty fair fight, so to speak, in that area when there's conflict. But I wanted to go over just a few real quick. But again, if you want to look at the link, there's a link of just all of the incidents that have happened in the past almost 30 years in that small area. So the first thing I wanted to bring up was if you go back to 1988, there was a one-day battle between Iranian forces and the U.S. Navy, which was called Operation Praying Mantis by the United States. So there was a U.S. ship called the Samuel B. Roberts 
they struck a mine that was laid in the channel by Iran. That led to a confrontation, and in that confrontation, U.S. forces sank one frigate, one gunboat, and possibly as many as six armed speedboats, and it seriously damaged a second frigate. Now, that was back in 1988, so that was a very one-sided fight. So again, Iran lays a mine, one of our ships hit it, we immediately aren't too happy about that. And so both sides kind of line up and we easily sank one of their frigates, a gunboat, six armed speedboats, and we seriously damaged a second frigate. So again, not even close to being a fight. That's the first thing I wanted to mention. That was again, 1988. Probably some of y'all listening out there may not even been born then, but that was 1988. So we jump forward to 2008. Again, this is 20 years later, and Iran tries the same thing. They've, they're feeling a little froggy, as we like to say in the South. So they do a few things to harass Navy ships. They, you know, go toward them at high speed with their little speedboats and do all kinds of little things that almost caused, at one point, the Pentagon said that a U.S. vessel had almost fired on approaching Iranian boats. And then, in a way that only a great admiral could do, the regional commander, Vice Admiral Kevin Cosgrove, said the Iranians had, quote, neither anti-ship missiles nor torpedoes, end quote, and, quote, he wouldn't characterize the posture of the U.S. Fifth Fleet as afraid of these small boats, end quote. So Iran starts feeling a little froggy, as we say in the South, tries to intimidate some U.S. ships, Pentagon says we nearly lit them up, but then the the admiral in the area is like, "Yeah, not really. We're not even that worried about them." So probably again some posturing on our part. So again, that was 2008, 20 years after 1988 when we sank several of their ships. Then we jump forward to 2011-2012. This is almost four years later. It gets much more serious this time. Iran claims it's going to cut off all oil supply period through the Strait of the Hormuz. Immediately, the U.S. Navy is like, uh, we don't think so. Now, we, at that time, a carrier had moved out, so the Iran plans this pretty well. We have no carrier in the area. It had left the Persian Gulf. And so, immediately, they claim that we better not send one back. The U.S. Navy says, the spokesperson says, we go where we want to go in international maritime waters and so we'll go where we want to go the british get involved and the french as well a lot of countries are starting to get involved because they can't have iran control this area now initially before any u.s ships get back first in a very smart move the british send in a a very advanced ship to the persian gulf to defy the Iranians. So they send in a Type 45 destroyer called the HMS Daring, which was considered at the time one of the most advanced warships in the world. Now, there was a lot of political back and forth about was this long planned or was it an escalation? Either way, they send that in. So the Iranians don't really want to shoot down a British 
or try to attack a British ship because their argument was with the U.S. So they weren't real sure how to handle this. But by then, more ships were headed that way because the world was not going to deal with Iran closing down this strait and stopping one-fifth of all oil um, cargo in the world. So the U.S. Navy was moving that way to, and at the time, General Martin Dempsey, who was the Joint Chiefs of Staff, said that the U.S. Navy would, quote, take action and reopen the strait. And that included, according to him, any military means, including potentially airstrikes. So this Navy was starting to move there because the world oil markets were very volatile. And as part of that, a flotilla was created. Three American aircraft carriers, Carl Vinson, the Enterprise, the Abraham Lincoln, three destroyers, seven British warships, and even a French warship, a frigate, goes. It's a massive armada. And suddenly Iran's like, eh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna calm down on this. So again, that was in two thousand twelve was the last time they got that aggressive. The entire world almost or the West responded. Now you jump forward to two thousand nineteen. Iran seizes a a large uh, bulk tanker is what it was called. Iranian forces seized this huge oil tanker, which was called a bulk tanker, that was flying under a British flag. So this happened in 2019. As a part of that, before it was, of course, eventually released, the uh, Fr France deployed about 600 troops at sea. So again, the countries will often use diplomatic means to keep from... No one really wants a war with Iran. It would be very bad. So there's always this positioning and almost these threats going back and forth. But again, that was in 2019. And so you fast forward to now, and it looks like, again, Iran is going to, you know, try to play their game in the Persian Gulf and to block this strait, which is called the Strait of Hormuz. So two ships seized. We'll see what happens. I'm not sure. Wasn't able to find the time to see what all we have in the area. Obviously, U.S. forces are kind of stretched thin because you've got increasing threats from China. You've got everything happening with Ukraine. You've got what's happening in Sudan. We've moved at least two ships down there. Our Navy's not as big as they used to be, so I'm sure we have Air Force uh, assets in the area as well. But Iran's feeling a little you know, aggressive. So we'll see how this plays out. But again, I have a link in the Substack notes if you want to go there and read some of these things in detail. It's a, uh, a great link with all of the things that have happened. And honestly, as I scroll up it again, there's been a basically an incident almost every year going back almost 30 years. So you can read all about it and how in the past the U.S. and other Western nations have kind of diplomatically said, you know, you're getting a little full of yourself. Let's not let's not go to war here. Let's just why don't you chill? Why don't we chill? And um, let's just all get along. Now moving from the Persian Gulf, also in the Middle East, wanted to stay on this topic that Russian warplanes are trying to dogfight U.S. jets over Syria, according to an Air Force general. There, I've got a link to the story in was actually originally put out in Defense One. It's a great little story. I uh, had some people reach out to me on social media that were worried about this. I uh, read the article. I'm not too concerned about it. 
but the article goes into a bit about how Russian war jets or warplanes or, you know, their jets are flying near and pretending and trying to dogfight. If you read the article, though, the U.S. jets are always traveling in at least pairs, so they're not along. If you read the article, you'll also see that anytime a Russian jet is in like a firing position or some kind of threatening position to the U.S. jet, there's a U.S. jet that's behind the Russian one as well, helping cover, so that if Russia ever tried anything too crazy, it's not going to be a good day for them. Now, anyone who's kept up with any defense news for any any time at all, if you go back the past 30, 40, 50 years, all the way back to the Cold War, Russia is constantly doing things to try to antagonize U.S. forces. And the general that was quoted in the article said, He's advising pilots to just stay calm. And so this is basically you've got the little loud bully that's trying to antagonize the calm, peaceful person. And so it's not going to be a good day for Russia if they were to make a mistake. You'd think with everything they got going on in Ukraine that they would just not be pushing their luck in Syria. They don't even have a lot of assets down there compared to what we have. But... Vladimir Putin has always been a master of trying to provide the perception of strength when in reality it's usually weakness. And he has again this week made the news for appearing strong when in reality he's pretty weak. You know, I hesitate to even give much time to that story because this is, it's it's funny, the last time Russia decided to get super aggressive with the United States was back in 2018. It was also in Syria. Literally almost 500 troops from, again, the Kremlin-linked mercenary group called Wagner. They had T-72 tanks, 500 armored personnel carriers, lots of Syrian forces with them. So almost 500 troops, 27 vehicles, Russian tanks, armored personnel carriers, and we only had 30 troops in the area. U.S. Rangers, Delta Force, literally just a few troops who were assisting with some Kurdish and Arab forces in the area. And so Russia decided, hey, there's a small contingent. Let's go embarrass America. That's what they thought they could do. And so they started moving toward these troops. They got within 20 miles. So the U.S. prepares a very small, quick reaction force. And even in that, there was only 16 troops in that with some uh, mine-resistant vehicles. So at that point, it looks very one-sided. So the Russians feel like they've got us. So they literally think they can attack and kill these Americans and make it look like it's a fog of war. Like, oh, we didn't know Americans were there. So these tanks, three of them get closer. It's obvious that a attack is about to happen. By 10.30, they were getting within range. Then they opened fire, literally opened fire with tank fire, artillery fire, mortar fire on the Americans as the Americans run for defensive positions. They start firing back with machine guns and anti-tank missiles. Literally, the Secretary of Defense, Jim Mattis, calls his Russian counterpart and says, Hey, your people are attacking ours. They better stop. And Russia thinking they're so smart, was like, no, that isn't our troops. It's not our troops. Secretary of Defense says, are you sure it's not your troops? And they're like, yeah, we're sure. (laughs) He picks up the phone, tells the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Dunford, 
that he wanted the force annihilated. And it was. Literally, the Americans started pounding it with airstrikes of F-22s, F-15s, the uh, Apache attack helicopters, AC-130 gunships. We even brought in B-52 bombers. We brought in Reaper drones. We had heavy marine artillery just relentlessly punish the force and literally killed hundreds of these Russian troops and Syrian troops. The Russians flee, the ones who managed to survive, by 1 a.m. I mean, it was over. So at least 200 to 300 dead fighters. How many Americans were dead? Zero. How many Americans were harmed? Zero. One Syrian fighter was wounded. No Americans harmed. We absolutely slaughtered them. Completely slaughtered them. So Russia loves to look tough, act tough, but they they know better than to mess with any of our jets that are flying over the area. And so, like I said, I'll often get people from social media who are worried about, you know, oh, these Russians are doing this or that. Believe me, they don't want any. And if they make the mistake, they're going to be much shorter on aircraft over Syria by the time we're done. That's like a guarantee. The name of the battle I just described is called the Battle of Kasham, or Kasham. I might not be pronouncing that right, but I have the link in the Substack notes. If you want to go read about it, it's very interesting. Very one-sided. There was lots of intercepted communications from the Russians as we were hitting them. Oh, man. They... <laughs> It's worth clicking the link, I think. Let's just say that. But again, the bigger point is I'm not too concerned that their jets are taunting our jets over the sky. It's just the little kid on the playground who's a bully who thinks that he can bother the stud who's, you know, on the playground and totally ignoring him. Now, the final story I wanted to cover in the Middle East is there are lots of Syrian refugees who are in nearby Lebanon. Of course, Lebanon is north of Israel. It's a country that is, you know, it struggles, to put it nicely. It's definitely economically challenged. They have a ton of Syrian refugees who fled Syria when the civil war happened. They're not even sure exactly how many are there. Some believe it's as many as 1.5 million to 2 2 million. So almost 2 million Syrians are in Lebanon. Lebanon has only got 800,000 of them registered. So they're starting to send people back. And the Syrian refugees are afraid to leave their camps and their tents because there are checkpoints. They're having their documentation reviewed. And anyone who's a non, you know, who isn't a citizen of Lebanon is being sent back. So. This could lead to, obviously, widespread suffering as these thousands and thousands of Syrians are forced back to their country in places, you know, many of their homes have been destroyed. But this will be a story to watch in the weeks to come, I would say. Although I would imagine the United Nations will probably do something to try to prevent this from being as bad as it could be. Because, again, 1.5 million to 2 million Syrians in Lebanon. Lebanon itself... There hasn't been a census in nearly a hundred years, but it's it's believed that Lebanon only has about five million uh, citizens, maybe five point five million, according to the article I've got linked. 
so no one's really even sure, you know, how many how many people live in Lebanon that are Lebanese citizens, but the Associated Press put the number at about 5 to 5.5 million, but to have up to 2 million Syrians on top of that, that is a lot of refugees, so that's a story that could definitely start to reverberate in the weeks to come. I definitely wanted to put that in as kind of a final news item. In tech news this week, I wanted to share something that was shared from Ukrainian armed forces. And, you know, we've talked in the past about how necessity is like the mother of invention. And unfortunately, Ukraine is going through this horrific war and it is forcing them to create new tactics, new technology, new ways to use old technology. Because when you're being attacked by a much larger, better armed foe, then, you know, necessity becomes the mother of invention. And there was an amazing video that was shared on uh, social media that unfortunately I can only link to the video through Twitter. I haven't found it on YouTube or anywhere or I would have shared that link, but it is worth watching. And so it involves one of the oldest technologies probably in the last hundred plus years, which is just boring old anti-tank mines, which are round. You bury them in the ground and then either something hits a sensor or they metal passes over or a certain amount of weight they're all there there are different methods of how anti-tank mines work depending on which type it is but obviously for anti-tank mines to work you have to spread a ton of them and it takes time and you have to bury them and conceal them and then you got to hope a tank comes down either that road or that trail or that open field and hits one and then a lot of times of course tanks are smart enough to know to avoid the most obvious areas so you have to also put them in areas where a tank might not go and so this takes hundreds and thousands of mines it takes time it is wasteful to do this now on the plus side the anti-tank mines are very inexpensive and they almost always work because they obviously explode up from the bottom or the belly of the tank which is barely armored and so they are effective but the problem is how do you get a tank to go over one? Well, fast forward to now, and Ukraine has, which obviously has a surplus of these anti-tank mines across the country, they have managed to fit a anti-tank mine to a, basically, I don't even know what you'd call it. It's, I guess, a drone. It's a wheeled vehicle, a robot-controlled wheeled vehicle, I guess. I'm not even sure really what the term would be. Uh, they're calling it a ground-based kamikaze vehicle. But they put an uh, anti-tank uh, mine, which is obviously round, on top of this small four-wheeled vehicle. The small vehicle has obviously a motor and a small engine. It's controlled by a human, has a small camera on it. And you drive this small little vehicle forward at decently rate of speed. And it is a very small target. And this thing runs forward, races forward drives under a tank and then immediately explodes so it's almost like a drivable anti-tank mine and when you watch this thing it's worth watching the video it's just a minute or two long you realize that it, a lot of times these russian tanks are attacking without enemy infantry which is part of why their tank attacks are so ineffective is that it's not a combined a combined arms assault as they ought to be but these tanks don't have infantry protecting them. And so if you imagine this small, mobile, anti-tank mine driving toward a large tank, which has a you know medium machine gun, the main, it would never hit it with its main cannon. It could possibly try to hit one with its medium machine gun, assuming it saw one. 
Of course, a lot of these Russian tankers are looking out of their very small um, sight windows that are, you know, have a small amount of armored or protected glass. So a lot of times they can't, they don't have great peripheral vision. They can't see very far. So this is really a, the kind of weapon that um, it could be, it could be pretty amazing. Now I will caveat it with one thing. There is a chance that when you look at this practice one, it's got four little rubber tires and it's obviously something they've modified and created. There is a chance that this was just something they tested and they wanted to put on social media to just further scare the crap out of Russian tankers and rough, Russian infantry. It might be just a pure piece of propaganda, but they definitely successfully tested a mobile, you know, kamikaze-controlled anti-tank rolling mine. And it is, like I said, it's amazing to watch. Again, it might just be for propaganda, but the Ukrainian spirit is something else. And the way that they have 3D, 3D printed some of these fins for the shells that they drop out of drones, who knows? They may have the production uh, capability or facilities to produce lots of these. I certainly hope they do. But anyway, I was just blown away by this revolutionary idea of a drivable, you know, kamikaze-equipped anti-tank round. So... We'll see if those play a role, but I definitely want to share. If you got a couple minutes, it's worth the watch. I promise you. And I've got the link to the video in the show notes. We're going to begin the motivation and wisdom section with a little pep talk because someone out there needs to hear this. I know someone out there needs to hear this. Listen, life is passing you by. You only get one shot at life and you're letting it slip through your fingers day by day. Life has beaten you down, kicked you in the face, ignored you, punished you, rained on you, assailed you with illnesses and injuries, burdened you with debts and levels of despair that I know are breaking your spirit. But you have to get up. Do you hear me? You have to get up. You're going to get up, and you're going to get up now, and you're going to start fighting back. Do not let despair win. Get up and take a step forward to confront these things facing you right now. Do it now. And let the following items that I'm going to share lift your spirit and take you to a higher level. You can do this. You're meant to do this. And you have to do this. For yourself, for your family, for your creator. And with all of that being said, I truly hope these help pick up your spirits, that they help revive your hopes, and that they help make you a better person. All right, I hope that pep talk helped motivate you and wake you up a bit. And now that you're paying attention, let's share a few more items to help feed and motivate you. Here's the first one. To guarantee success, act as if it were impossible to fail. Again, to guarantee success, act as if it were impossible to fail. That's a great one. I know for me, doubt is probably the one thing I have to fight against most each and every day. All right, next one. If we don't believe there's something better, we won't try for something better. That's a great one, isn't it? If we don't believe there's something better, we won't try for something better. So please, people, believe. We can all do this. Next one. Change your language to, what if it does work out? Believe in possibilities. Think of the best case scenario. Retraining your mind will lift you out of the overthinking 
stress, and worry of negative thoughts. Change starts with your mindset. Shift it. Switch it. It's a great one. Next one. You become what you believe. It's another great one. You become what you believe. Next one. Focus more on the people who inspire you rather than annoy you. You'll get much further in life. Again, focus more on the people who inspire you rather than annoy you. You'll get much further in life. Next one. Mindset matters a lot. You better improve it. Again, mindset matters a lot. You better improve it. Next one. Ships don't sink because of the water around them. They sink because of the water that gets inside them. That's really good, isn't it? Again, ships don't sink because of the water around them. They sink because of the water that gets inside them. Next one. Remember this fact. Quotes won't work unless you do. Oh, that's a great one, isn't it? Remember this fact. Quotes won't work unless you do. I always like to end with this one. Be the reason someone smiles. Be the reason someone feels loved and believes in the goodness of people. I always think that's a great one to end with. And with that, thanks for joining us this week on The View from the Front. For those who want to know a little bit more about me, here's the short version. I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee, and I left home to join the Marine Corps at the age of 17. I was also crazy enough to demand that the Marine Corps put me down for guaranteed infantry. I served four years in the infantry, saw enough danger to decide I no longer had anything else to prove, and I exited military service in 1999. I earned a degree from the University of Tennessee in journalism and spent 10 plus years in the news business. I worked initially as a reporter, but then went on to start a weekly newspaper. What can I say? Anyone crazy enough to start a weekly newspaper at the age of 27 is probably a dreamer and an optimist, and I confess that I'm both. I owned that weekly newspaper for nine years, but once it was clear that owning a newspaper wasn't the best path to financial security, I went on to become an author. To date, I've written 11 books, and while I still have my sights set on the tallest peaks in the writing world, I'm now here as well, a once-a-week podcaster who's still in love with both this country and the news. And I see this podcast as a small way to continue serving our country, doing my best to inform and unite us in a time that we're as divided as we've probably been in a hundred years. Well, I've talked enough about me. I really hope you'll consider at least signing up to be a free subscriber. And if you can, consider at some point becoming a paid subscriber. Again, you can do both of these things at my substack, stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. As a reminder, please be kind and try your best to love your fellow Americans. Let's all work together to unite this country. And also, please try to be a better person each and every day. Try to be kinder on social media and how you interact with others with whom you disagree. And if you've got a dream kicking around in the back of your mind, go after it. If you have that friend or family member that you know you should reach out to, who you haven't talked to in a few months, reach out to them. Also, if you haven't already put a rating on some of the social media places that you listen to us, whether it's Apple Podcasts or some of the others, if you could drop a rating, that'd be great. We're trying to get those up because I've heard if you get them up to 30 or 40, then the algorithms take over. So that'd be a great way to help out. Finally, I should mention my books. I've written 11 of them. 
You can find all of those books on Amazon by simply searching my name, Stan or Mitchell, or you can find the link to them in the Substack notes. Again, thanks so much, guys, for joining us this week. And with that, I am out.